As Billy mentioned, I'm, I'm not a regular preaching pastor, so you're going to need to bear with me today. But um, I'm certainly glad to be here. Uh, so this is a, uh, a change of season, I guess, for the church, typically a Labor Day. Uh, equip classes for the summer come to a close. We start a new uh, um, series of classes. We're coming to a close in our sermon series over the course of this summer. We went through the Psalms. Um, this would be the last of those today. And then we move on to a whole new sermon series going, uh, going forward. Uh, kind of the end of summer uh, reboot, if you will. Um, people kind of getting back into the routine of school and those kinds of things. So um, one of the things I did do, though, as I was looking at the, uh, preaching today, was I went back and looked over the course of the last um, 11 weeks, I guess it is now, 12, uh, of the sermons that had been already given on the Psalms. Now, I, I, we can go back and look at them specifically, but I just wrote down briefly, and I thought we could go back and take a look briefly at the titles of those sermons. Okay, so the first one, again, um, as Our Maj Majestic Lord, then it was Our Good Shepherd, God Revealed. Enduring faith, steadfast love. Live wisely. Sovereign hand of grace. His love endures forever. To God be the glory. Create in me a clean heart, O God. My heart thirsts for you. Blessed be a blessing. And then today's title... Um, in closing this series out, is called Satisfied. And so, being that I'm a part of the prayer team, um, and I'm, we're in Psalms, it's a, it's a place I live in terms of prayer and my prayer life. And so, um, first thing I did when I read this list was I thought, that should be a prayer. And so, I want to do that now. We're going to pray just briefly, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, God, you are an amazing God. How can we not be satisfied with you? Our majestic Lord, you are a good shepherd. You have revealed yourself to us through your creation to show us your enduring faith and your steadfast love that we might live wisely. Your sovereign hand of grace and your love endures forever. To you be the glory. So, Father, create in us a clean heart, O oh God. Our heart thirsts for you. Help us to be a blessing to others because you have blessed us so. Father, finally help us to live satisfied. Amen. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 63. That's where we will be at today. David, in Psalm 63, he lays out yet again a template for how to find satisfaction in the here and the now. In no matter what our circumstance might be. 
The Psalms show us over and over how we might live in a world that quite often leaves us less than satisfied. And as I began to uh, prepare for the sermon and thinking about this list of Psalms represented over the course of the last 11 weeks, I kept coming back to David and his life and his many trials and his troubles, and yet over and over he comes to a place of peace that God is enough. And often for me in reading the Psalms, I can identify with the psalmist in theory, but at the same time I find myself intimidated. I, 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 I don't know about you, but I don't, I, if I'm honest with myself, I don't finish each stanza of my life in peace and satisfaction. And that got me thinking as well. You know, our satisfaction is the source, or maybe our lack of satisfaction, is the source of virtually all of our dissatisfaction. I mean, have you been less than satisfied with your spouse Have you been less than satisfied with a close friend? I mean, let's flip this. Lots of parents in the room. Have your children been less than satisfied with you and your rules? How about the job? How about your house? How about the family? See, when we're dissatisfied in life, we often attempt to make things better by pushing our will against it. That's not always wrong, but how's that working out for you? I know in my case, that is the source of my frustration and dissatisfaction. Why are we so dissatisfied? Is it because someone or something is not performing as we thought they ought to? What if we had this completely upside down? What if... Being satisfied is not an inside job. What if it's a willingness to seek the only one who can truly satisfy? Psalm 63, it's a psalm of David when he is in the wilderness of Judah. We're going to read a short 11 verses, but it speaks immensely to this idea. Verse 1 says this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, 
and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. My, your right hand, it upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth, and they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall, shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, um, the, the words of David, um, when applied to our hearts, can be life-changing, Father. I, I pray that you would just be with us today. God, that, that uh, as your word is proclaimed, that it, it provides for each one of us something that we take with us, that we dwell upon, that we spend the, the watches of the night thinking about, or that it would change us and change us more and more into the image of Christ as you de deem fit. I just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, from where does your satisfaction come from? God richly satisfies those who hunger and thirst for him. Quite often in the Psalms, the metaphor of the wilderness is used. And in verse 1, David uses this metaphor once again. He doesn't state the, the wilderness itself, but it's a dry and dreary, parched land where he is. So we get this picture. And um, he's, he's using this idea and this metaphor to give us the state, his state of mind. He's troubled. Again, he's on the run from his enemies, out in the desert, in the wilderness of Judah. Now, we're not told, we don't know, exactly who is seeking to destroy him, whether it be um, the time that Saul is chasing him or his son Absalom. Now, most commentaries would suggest that it's probably as Absalom because of his mention in verse 11 of the king. But regardless, David is figuratively using language to describe his physical and his emotional state. He's in the wilderness. He's tired. He's thirsty. He's in need of his God to satisfy his thirst and to comfort him. So the first thing that we learn here that the psalmist teaches us in verse 1 is that he earnestly seeks. And I know that over the last 11 weeks, this theme has been brought out over and over. I know I, I have a couple of times probably. Um, but when you find yourself in the wilderness, whatever that may be for you, Seeking God is the first thing we do. No? Me either. Um, he says that his soul thirsts and his flesh faints. So he is describing the inner and the outer man. Outer man earnestly seeking God. 
who richly satisfies. I don't know about you, but when I find myself in the wilderness, a wilderness, um, it's typically not a place where I find my satisfaction. I'm completely dissatisfied. As a matter of fact, I'm doing anything and everything I can to make the wilderness go away. Again, pressing my will against something so that I can make it better. And as I said, how's that working out for you or me? Not so good usually. But I do know that far more than we realize, the things that we focus on are the things or the things that hold our attention are the things that control us. Those are the things that actually create the circumstances, in a sense, the circumstances of our life. Um, give an illustration. And this may be not a good one, but have you ever bought a car? Whether it be brand new or not so new, you're going to get a new car for the family or what have you. And so you, you got to do the research. You know, you're going to, you're going to look up Kelly Blue Book and you're going to you know, get the reviews and you're going to find out who might have this vehicle and what kind of, what's it going to cost and can I afford it. And, and you literally lay awake at night wondering, you know, is this a good decision? Is it not a good decision? And then eventually all this time and thought is wrapped up in this car and eventually you say, okay, we're going to pull the trigger. And so you go get the car and there it is in the driveway all shiny and new. There's no french fries stuck between the seats in the back, you know. Um, all, the, all the vents are actually clean. There's not any f fuzz bud, you know, but what do they call those things? Fuzz bunnies. Little, yeah, yeah, none of that. Okay, um, it, you know, you start it up, it, it hums, the air conditioning's blowing cold. Man, this is awesome. As a matter of fact, you lay in bed that night, and I've done this with a, not so maybe brand new, but a new vehicle, and actually thought about things I might need at the store because I want to go drive it again. So we get caught up, and, and it causes us to um, just tie up our mind completely with this new and or exciting idea or this new and or exciting thing that's, gonna, that's been brought into our life. And then... A month goes by, six months goes by, and suddenly you notice everyone around here is driving this car. I thought it was, like, special. I thought it was my car, but no, everyone's got one of these things. And what is that rattle? What is that noise that thing's making? It's got some sort of squeak in the back. It's driving me nuts. And would you clean up those french fries, please? Um, your excitement kind of dwindles. Let's say it's not just, it's not the same. And... You lay in bed at night wondering, uh, did I make the right decision here? I'd really like a new car. This thing's getting old. Yeah, there's a good example. But you know, it is what we think about, what we dwell upon, what occupies our mind. It's what changes us. It's what moves us. Earnestly seeking God is the bedrock for a life of satisfaction. Seeking my will more times than not brings disappointment and dissatisfaction. 
How many times must we relearn this same lesson? You know, I went through a gospel project for two or three years uh, in Equip and uh, went from soup to nuts through the Bible with the gospel project. And the first year, year and a half in the Old Testament, it's just story after story after story after story of these crazy Israelites, man. Will they get this figured out? I mean, they just keep turning their back on God and then bad stuff happens. And then suddenly, oh, oh, we made a mistake. Father, forgive us. And then things are good again. And then here they go again. Until I started looking in the mirror. And that's my life over and over. How long does it take for us to learn these lessons? But his word, God, through his infinite wisdom, and uh, has provided us with his word and an example, an example after example, to believe and to trust in the work of his hands. We can think of, I'm sure, each one of us, times in our life where we can look back and we can go, Wow, can you believe what God did in that circumstance? But when we're in the midst of the wilderness, doesn't seem to be what we're thinking about, right? So God richly satisfies us. I'm sorry, God richly satisfies as he reveals his glory through our worship. In verse 2, it starts with, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. David sees his God in the sanctuary, beholding his power and his glory. In the temple is found the presence of God. We read that through the Old Testament, know that. When he says he looked upon God, we don't really know exactly what that means. I'm picturing (laughs) David sneaking up to the Holy of Holies and looking behind the curtain, but... I, I doubt he did that, but, um, but he knows his presence is there. And like David, we, amongst one another gathered, is time well spent. In Hebrews 10, verse 25, it says that we should never neglect the gathering of God's people. And I know that it is in the gathering of God's people and the hearing of his word that power comes. It is here that I, personally, realize I'm not wandering in a wilderness by myself. But I have you along my side, along by my side, worshiping our powerful and glorious God together. And this helps me to really understand his steadfast love for me. We get to witness his spirit at work in us through the gathering of his people corporately and each and every week as we gather in homes around this city. In verse, verses 3 and 4, David speaks of God's steadfast love as better than life. Indeed, it is. Because his love is life. It's life eternal. As, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, verse 6, it says, To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, 
In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. In the second century, uh, there was a Christian bishop by the name of Polycarp, and he uh, was uh, a, an apostle of, or a, a student of the apostle John. And in his travels, um, he got caught by a Roman governor um, for preaching Christ. He was pulled before the governor, and the, the governor uh, had told him that his life would be spared if he would denounce Christ. And to that, Polycarp replied, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has never wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And then he, then he was martyred and burned at the stake. And like David, this pastor knew that to know God is better than life itself. So the Father in heaven indeed deserves our worship, and I would be remiss if I didn't uh, point something out for us. Um, if you do, if you would look back in verse 4, it says, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift my hands. Now, I know that as a church, we're not exactly charismatic. But um, if you make note that at the end of verse 4, it actually says that, that, um, that he raised his hands. So, I mean, it is something we can do to praise God. One of the things I appreciate when going to Africa um, in the Muslim faith, one of the things that they do when they pray is they always, they always pray with their hands up like this. That's raising their hands, showing their hands to God, basically bringing nothing before the Lord. And I think that's beautiful because it's true. We bring nothing to God. All things that we see, that we have, that we live with, that we breathe are from the Lord. And to give him praise is, well, it's what he desires, but it is... Uh, certainly easy enough when we consider the truth about what he has done. God richly satisfies our soul as we consider all that he has done. In verses 5 through 7, the psalmist highlights his assurance and his dependence upon God. In verse 5, it says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. In the, um, in the culture of the time, we're not so much, maybe some, but we're not so much into this as, as I guess they were. And a lot of what they were cooking in terms of meat was just thrown on the fire, right? They didn't have the uh, Instapot. You know, they didn't have those things to help the meat uh, uh, 
become savory, if you will. A lot of it, they had to rip off the bone. It, and so the fat, that was the best part to them. Now, some of us would get rid of the fat. It's like, ooh, that's just too much. But so when he says, when he says fat and rich food, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the, the, the stuff that we go, oh, man, that is so good. I don't know about you, but this is but Pam and I, that's our thing. We like to go eat. Now, recently with the whole COVID and, I don't know, the thing with the smell and the taste that she's been going through, we haven't been doing it as much. We've saved some money that way, but um, we like to go out and eat. And then we, we sit and listen to one another make yummy noises about what we've just eaten, right? Um, but food and drink, they're essential to life. It's not anyone that probably doesn't get a metaphor made about food. So it's no wonder that often poets and preachers use them as metaphors, very often. Jesus did it as well. And in in, uh, John, the book of John, in chapter 6, we have the story, a very familiar story, of... um, Jesus feeding 5,000. Okay, so a couple of fish and five loaves, right? Tells 5,000 people, sit down on the grass. Now, these are 5,000 men. Of course, there's families with them and stuff, so we don't know the number of people, but a lot. And Jesus begins to break the bread, and he tells all the disciples, pass this out, you know, pass it around. And and it says that um, after they had all sat down, that they ate until they were satisfied. Wow, right? So that in itself is a miracle, but they ate until they were satisfied. And, um, but then a little further on, it, he, uh, following that, Jesus walks on the water. The people are trying to follow him because he's given them free food, right? Um, and so these crowds are trying to follow him, so he goes across the water, um, and they... And, some of the people were able to find him there. And, um, and this is when he talks to them about being the bread of life. So he's making this metaphor with how well they were fed, that they, they uh, were completely satisfied. And so he makes the connection that uh, the bread he gave them, it satisfied this crowd abundantly. And the picture here is that Jesus is the bread of life. And of course, we know that. It's very common term among Christendom, Jesus is saying to them and to us that believing in him brings satisfaction and abundant life. Now, abundant life needs to be defined. Uh, There would be those and some churches that would think abundant life means something about wealth and that kind of thing, and it does not. I mean, it, it could, but an abundant life is one that is fulfilled And it has a lot more to do with satisfaction. So I doubt there was any of us here that that don't already really know this, but how often do we truly dwell on that? How often do we sit and consider just how satisfied we are in Christ? What God has done. Unfortunately, most of the time, our focus is from the bottom up when in fact it should be from the top down. 
And in verse 6, it says, When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. It's those hours that are late and the house is dark and it's quiet. We lay in bed and we ponder all kinds of things. Now, I've been blessed with a job that provides for us abundantly, I guess. And uh, comparatively speaking to working for myself many of the years early on where I would lay in bed at night wondering how I'm going to pay the guys that were working for me or how I was going to see that this bill got paid. I, you know, for a long period of my life, I paid bills based on color, right? When they turned red, okay, it's time to pay that one, right? Um, that's not the case anymore, but I used to lay awake in, at night Sometimes we, can, we can't even sleep. We lay in our, in our bed thinking of all these things. We, all we see about the desert, about the wilderness that we're in, is the sand and the heat and the dryness and the thirst. That's all we can see. It's bottom-up thinking. So we must actively direct, redirect our attention to the Lord. It's not a natural thing, I don't think. Maybe for some, I've read, it may be for some, but for most of us, this is work. It requires our attention. But if we direct our attention to the Lord being from top down to meditate on how he helps us in verse 7, talks of that, how he protects us and he upholds us in verse 8. Those are the things that we ought to dwell upon. And those are the things that will actually make us move. Now we get to verses 9 and 10, and this is classic David. There's always a part, seems like, in the scripture where there's the violence and the killing and the you know, get my enemies and all that sort of thing. And we have to understand that David is a man of war and he's been on the run most of his life from people that are trying to see him dead. So he's no stranger to the battlefield. And so he uses some language, in, especially in verse 10, regarding the jackals. That's some gruesome pictures that, paint, that are painted there. But if you think of a battlefield, not the battlefields we deal with today, but the battlefields of old where men are fighting with swords, spears, clubs, uh, the carnage must have been just awful. And so I'm picturing this in my mind, this battle that has happened in bodies just spewing out all over this valley. Well, of course, the scavengers come. So this is the picture he paints for us. But it got me thinking, you know, uh, two weeks ago, our uh, equip class ended. And so last week when Pam and I came, we dropped Misha off um, to go to uh, the youth uh, group. And um, we were going to skate and run out and get a coffee. And then next thing you know, we're sitting in the Attributes of God final class. And um, interestingly enough, the final class of the Attributes of God that Pastor Seth was teaching is on the wrath of God. And so 
it's something that really needs to be talked about. And often in churches, um, they, they don't really want to talk about that. They'll cut the sermon, sermon short at verse 8 because it's difficult to deal with some of what, when you think of in terms of wrath of God. God slaying his enemies. But David, David gives us this picture. And, but he also realizes that God is going to fulfill his promises. And David was anointed the king of Israel by Samuel, by proclamation from God the Father. So David is the anointed king, and anyone that opposes the anointed king is opposing God. And so therefore, David is assured, certain, that anyone trying to kill David, they're going to perish at the hand of God. As a matter of fact, he never, with opportunities, never killed Saul. He allowed that to happen when he had opportunity. He knew God would handle it, and God did. So, the subject of God's wrath is, it's not necessarily a pleasant thing, but it's something to be talked about, and it got me thinking of this last week, is that um, these were the men that were, the people that were coming after David are actually God's enemies, right? And so God's going to deal with them harshly. And it's right that he does because God is just. If he's not just, then he's not God. If there is no wrath, then there is no justice. There's no answering wrongs. And so we like this picture of a God that is benevolent and kind, and, and he is. But to those that are not his, those that he has not um, counted as his children, woe to you. If God is just and sin is an enemy of God, then I once was that enemy. I once was food for the jackals. But Jesus Christ and his blood changed all of that. It is what we face without Jesus Christ. So God richly satisfies through his son, Jesus Christ. So we, unlike David, we live under the new covenant. God has sent his son, and we have the king of kings to satisfy us if, as we live in obedience to him. To quote uh, John Bunyan, a Puritan preacher and writer, he said the heart of Christianity is to live upon God. That is, we are and are made for God. We are made to know him, to enjoy him, to revere him, to draw our strength from him, to trust him, and to love him. Just consider the language of Psalm 63. David speaks of God as the thirst-quenching water for his dry and barren soul. He speaks of God as the delicious meal for his hungry soul. He speaks of God as his shade and his protection, like the wings of a great bird. 
David needs one thing, as we do as well. We need God. So what specifically is it in knowing God that gives David life and strength? We look again in verse 3. It says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And then if we go to verse 5, my soul will be satisfied. The steadfast love of God is what satisfies us. It is that God is doing it all. It's his character, his goodness, his greatness alone are my satisfaction. The Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, a long time ago, these guys had it down, they figured it out. First question of that catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So, in closing, I I need to ask the question one more time. From where does your satisfaction come? To follow David's template, his example, hunger and thirst for the Lord. Have you ever been really hungry? Have you ever been really thirsty? Will you grab that bottle of water and just down it, or you even drink from the garden hose? You know what I mean? That thirsty. Seek God's glory through your worship. Consider it a blessing just to be among God's people so that your worship can be enhanced by the worship of others. Meditate on all that he has done. I mean, when we stop to really think that I am jackal food, if not for the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, but that changes things. And live for Jesus Christ, the Savior, and our King. Let's pray.